Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I am happy to welcome to the show poet Carolyn Hembree. Carolyn is an assistant professor at the University of New Orleans. She has been featured in over 40 national journals and anthologies and has published two full-length books of poetry, Skinny, which was released in 2012 via Core Press, and most recently, Rigging a Chevy into a Time Machine and Other Ways to Escape a Plague, which was published this year, won the 2015 Trio Award and the 2015 Rochelle Ratner Memorial Award. Now that I am done singing your praises, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks. Good. I'm glad to have you on here. I'm glad to be here. Well, great. Well, we're kind of getting into this. I, I wanted to start with your, your most recent book, uh, Rigging a Chevy. Uh, and I, I have loved that title ever since I first saw it in a bookstore here in the shop. And I was wondering where that came from and how the project came about. I think the title actually came very early, the, which is not how in the in the classroom or in conversations, I think of poetry happening because certainly nothing else happened in order. And I do work on projects. That's just my predilection as a poet. But the titular poem was the first thing out. Yeah. So the title was there pretty early, I think. Really? That, well, that's interesting. And you've been working on this this book in particular for a long period of time, right? I have. It involved a lot of travel back to Appalachia. I was born in East Tennessee, mm -hmm. and my family, I don't know, the word settled sort of bothers me, but uh, they were squatters from Virginia who moved mm -hmm. down to Tennessee pre-Revolutionary War and yes. did whatever destruction and squatting and, you know, things that they did in Middle Tennessee. And um, I was called at a certain point to sort of... Uh, I guess I felt a call to go back to that area and do some research and was lucky enough to get a grant from Louisiana Division of the Arts and UNO to sort of pad my travels there. So I went back to the area, went to the East Tennessee archives and spent a lot of time dwelling there, but also dwelling in the landscape again. So I think it was, it was kind of a call back. There's a documentary arm to it, mm -hmm. but that arm has been submerged as far as the the actual book, the collection goes, there are no footnotes. There are no, I mean, well, there are a few, I guess, end notes. Yeah. But those end notes are just mentioning the places that I sort of pulled from and listened to and the myriad sources that sort of informed it. Yeah. Well, why was that important for you to, to kind of go back and, and hearken to these things and, and your own family's history and, you know, Appalachia in general? I think at that point in uh, my life, I was sort of having a, crisis of uh, my uh, lack of belief in God, which I've never believed in God, and I think, and I still don't. So the book that did not answer that question, and kind of going back to the source where I came from, where my people had been for a long time, I'd have to go back to Wales if I wanted to really get to, you know, further back to the source for me. Mm -hmm. But I... And so that really started to bother me. And I'm kind of going back to the area that was so familiar to me for the first eight years of my life, the birch uh, trees, things like that. It, it somehow was a way for me to kind of reckon with that question for the time and kind of feel a bit of peace, yeah. I think. That's interesting. I'd love if you could uh, share a poem from the book. Sure. I'll start out with a poem that... Uh, is toward the beginning of the book. And the poem contains a murder ballad, and the first 
section of the book. The central character is V Club, who's a an accursed wanderer, and his girlfriend Eye Candy and their child Adeline. And so this is sort of the nativity of that. And later in the book, it breaks down in to a kind of multiverse where my own personal history is involved and things like that. But this is early on, so it introduces the characters in the nativity scene for Adeline. V Club has a girl, baptizes her, Adeline, in the blow-up pool, lays her here in the side yard, half-born she made a quarter hour, under a half-step headstone by half a sedan, transmission grazing the hood. Couple Washington slid in a flower sack she just fits in. Banjo-faced and the crown, a see-through, blue through burlapped. Swears he'll hear his girl grow. A 17-year locust molting for the last time. B-Club hears himself say, a mason jar, a bar of lie on the sill. No point making yourself good-looking no more. You ain't hearing me, God. My flesh. And what else washed down with the shave water? Thank you for sharing. Uh, one of the things I really admire about your work is this mixture of voice, voices, actually, and how these histories submerge under that, as you had mentioned. Uh, how do you balance that? as far as like voices coming in and out and, and these characterization, the arcs within this overall work? With, well, I think on two levels. On the one hand, as far as process itself, I don't balance anything. Yeah. I am, I, I speak aloud as I'm writing. I also listen to music at certain periods when I'm writing. I sort of frame everything in my life, almost like a method actor around the way the book is moving, and that's what I steep in. And so there's really no gesture toward balance, but rather, you know, everything's chaotic. Yeah. Luckily, I have readers and whom I trust, and the readers, once I'm ready to kind of bring a little bit, uh, let a little tip of the iceberg kind of uh, emerge, that's when my readers come in and are like, oh, wow, this makes absolutely no sense at all. Oh, whoa. So uh, then I begin to do the back work. So that's on the back end, mm -hmm. like saying, parsing the voices and saying, well, this voice I'm going to attribute to X. I am going to go ahead and, you know, move this point of view all the way out to third person in most of these poems. Um, that those choices are made on the back end. Yeah. Far on the back end. They really don't interest me that much on the front end. Though revision is fun. I was I was going to ask you actually the next question. Is revision more fun for you than the the actual just like blurting it out process? You know, and letting it be on the page? Revision is definitely more fun. Right. My sort of interest in logic and mathematics and all of those things get to play into the revision process. So mm -hmm. that part is fun uh, when I'm actually going through and reordering things. And I find the the steeping and the patience, the waiting for it, the doubt, and still continuing with it, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's awful, really, right? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of awful. It really is. <laughs> so it's good to, <laughs> to get through that, right? Um, it's awful, but I'll, I'll add something. I mean, 
there is um, there's an article. It was the last interview by C.D. Wright that I know of that appeared in American Poetry Review, and she talked about writing. And this is something that actually my workshop and I looked at last night, mm. though I know when this airs. Won't be last night. <laughs> and she talks about writing for her being a free space and in which she doesn't have to negotiate, um, of course, all the way all of us have to negotiate um, public space and the way we're perceived and so on. And inside of that writing is a free space. So on the one hand, I say, oh, it's horrible. It's, you know, whatever. It's it's not. It's also, it's survival in order to be able to be in a space that literally, physically, I'm lucky to have an office now. I used to not. A space where I can make what I need to make and code it the way I feel it needs to be coded. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's important. And uh, you had mentioned interest in mathematics and uh, different theories and stuff. Uh, Stephen Hawking makes an appearance in this book towards the end. Uh, how did that come about? A Brief History of Time, which, you know, is fairly popular reading now. And there's also a documentary uh, called Brief History of Time. So really what interests me and what, I mean, I can even wrap my head around were his questions from sort of a more philosophical point of view, his questions kind of, it was all happened so, and and that's, I think, speaks to the book in the way it exists as sort of multiverse, multiverses and so on. But it was happened so that I ran into his work with uh, quantum mechanics and his questions at the same time that I was working on the book. And so it was like, well, okay, what happens if I take his questions and then answer them with uh, Appalachian folklore, with my personal uh, family history, uh, with other aspects of myself and other bits of research that I've done that are not necessarily in his field. What happens if I start to answer those in that way? And that's sort of, it was just playing on the surface. And kind of exercising that and making this, you know, large, um, these large questions and putting it in a personal nature. That, that's, that's interesting. Um, if, if you, uh, I was wondering if you could share one of those, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did the universe have a beginning? And if so, what happened before then? Then. It took off an arc. Was the ribcage of a horse a dog drags and gnaws and drags past a world of curs left behind? An afterlife was the costume of a blue jay web. I found it now. Put it on. This. 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 Thank you. Um, I was very uh, lucky to see you perform three times this past year. Uh, I kind of stumbled upon the first one and was like, well, I need to go see this again because it's there. Uh, and you have a very interesting and distinct performance style uh, that lends itself a lot to, I think, your, your acting background, as you, as you said before. Um, I'm wondering about the work on the page and how that meshes with that performance style. Are you, when you're writing this book, are you constantly thinking about how you're going to perform it? Or are they separate entities? I never think about how I'm going to read it when I'm, when I'm actually working through it, though I do speak as I'm working with the stuff. And so a lot of times, by the time I'm willing to actually bring it to an audience uh, to hear, I 
usually have it memorized at that point yeah. because I've I've spent so much time dwelling in the language, but not so much dwelling in the language for that audience, though there is preparation for that. So the writing is its own separate thing where I'm working with this, you know, artificial thing of the page and fooling with that. And then I want the reading to be a separate experience, yeah. one that hopefully enriches or it could even ruin somebody's reading of the book, and that's fine. Um, but hopefully it has its own little arc. So as I prepare to read to an audience, I think about, you know, where I'll be, whether I'm going to be, you know, here in a, a radio station or I'm going to be in a library or I'm going to be in an auditorium. And I think about the kind of level of intimacy moving, you know, to use the metaphor, moving closer to and away from the mic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, I see that. I see that. I think that, that that's kind of a, a fun aspect of it, though, to kind of find these different presentations and all these uh, almost like thinking of it as a a set piece of art, right? You know, not necessarily like a portrait, but something that is meant to be physical and an improvement. And that's, that's part of it. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, why you had the acting background, do you do any acting anymore or have you sworn it off? I, I guess it, it, I did swear it off and I don't know that I believe in swearing things off anymore. Um, but I did, I, I definitely walked away. Well, drove away from New York in a minivan uh, with several uh, guinea pigs and, and a hamster and uh, everything <laughs> loaded and my husband and a wedding dress that I didn't want him to see and all of our possessions in the rain out of Queens. That's heading, how you should drive away from New York, I yeah, believe. Yeah. Oh, heading toward uh, Tucson, Arizona for uh, my graduate studies there. But yeah. I had spent my years in, in New York attempting to pursue an acting career so yeah. at that point it was definitely a you know i am done with this for good <laughs> and i haven't felt a call back to it right, that, that, that's good have you ever felt a call to another genre outside of poetry or no 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 you're, you're happy in this vein this is what you want to do i don't know if i'd say i'm happy in it yeah. i am in this vein and all right. it, it is the vein that sort of um i'm in what frustrates you about it, if anything? Or there there might be obviously things that frustrate you, you know, working in this, but... Um, it, well, it frustrates me, uh, everything about working, trying to either negotiate closed forms and free forms in this sort of free verse and, and the relationship between those um, drives me a little bit crazy. Mm -hmm. I don't know how well I can answer that. Um, what bothers me about it? I think, I think that... I'd like to, in a way, you know, not ever really take note of anything again in my little notebooks mm -hmm. and, that you know, and the little things that I collect uh, for my little den because I have sort of a man cave where I work, which is also a laundry room that was hard one because I used to just work in a corner of the bedroom I shared with my husband, but mm -hmm. now I have this little space. But in a way, it's like, oh, and all the crazy things I hang on the wall and the totems and all of that. Just, just be, let that all kind of go and then just go to a beach somewhere and just sort of be in the moment and not be reflecting on the moment or moving through language in a way that doesn't simply um, function as representational or function to communicate, but language that is kind of constantly interrogating itself. So there's a part of me that's like, gosh, you know, why don't I just not, just not? Yeah. 
That'd be great. Leave it. Leave it down. Just not. Yeah. Let's just go. And I don't know. That's not entirely uh, necessarily. uh, I won't do that. I think that there's there may be a time to retire from everything. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's important. That's a that's a hard thing to do. That's kind of when you insert yourself in this type of um, of calling. you can dream about letting it go, but it is necessary, right, for you to continue having those things if you're going to produce the work that you want. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's important. Um, tell, me, tell me about teaching. Do, how has teaching been for you? I've been teaching now, uh, I guess, since the year, uh, since 2000. So I've been teaching for 16 years. I started teaching in Tucson when I was a student at Arizona, and I started at UNO as a uh, an adjunct instructor in 2001, and now I'm an assistant professor. So it's been a long, it's haul. been a long haul, <laughs> and and yet and yet my experience is extremely narrow. Yeah, uh, because I have been at two institutions because I've been lucky enough, privileged enough, what have you, to have been leaving grad school right before that just massive bubble blew all over everyone, which yeah. was, you know, the just too many MFA students attempting to get into the academy on the teaching end. I was like right on the cusp of that. So I was able to walk out and naively just walk into a job with absolutely no idea of what I was doing. Yeah. What's your favorite aspect of, of the, the courses you're teaching now? Uh, when do you get excited at, during a semester, like when you're, when you're teaching all the way around? Is there a particular thing that you get to teach or present to the students that you really enjoy above all? I mean, I'm not, I'm never not excited. Yeah. I, get, I get really, yeah, I get kind of, um, yeah, I get very jumped up when yeah. I'm in the classroom. And I I also enjoy one-on-one time. And I think that my, the sort of um, very strong personality that I have is both my sort of a trademark and it's what I am as a teacher, but it's also my weakness. And that's, I think, um, so I'm always excited about teaching. I'm always excited about talking about the poems that students are working with. I think the thing that I enjoy doing most is uh, Flannery O'Connor talked about the usefulness of teachers and sort of teachers of writing and said that really our primary use is to recommend to students what they should read. And so I've taken that, I take that very seriously as far as my pedagogy goes. And I with each student, I always tell them, I'm, you know, I'm trying to get a bead on you, which I guess you really shouldn't say these days. But, I, you know, I want to get a sense with each one of what poet I can recommend to him or her, what poem that I can bring to them that will sort of open up other ways to explore the the field. So that's probably what excites me the most about teaching. I think that as far as, like, the strength and the weakness of, the personality um, is that one of the the best advice I think I got about teaching was to ask genuine questions mm-hmm. that you really don't have the answer to. And it's very easy to get in this sort of um, echo chamber where it's, you know, you just love the sound of your own voice and there's the proselytizing, you know, professor, just, you know, oh, you know, the poetry and all of this this junk. So I, I think that I want to get better at, um, well, I want to get better at both writing and, and at, at teaching, I'm better at listening, which I think is 
the piece with both that I want to improve. Yeah. So but there's still this hunger just to, to do it all, though. That, that, that's really kind of amazing because I know a lot of people kind of fall back after, after a while and it, it loses its kind of luster a little bit. Uh, that, that's really great that you're excited just to be in the classroom. Um, as far as uh, if you were your own student in the hypothetical, uh, what poets would you recommend for yourself back in college that, that would have helped you to, to get where you are to another place that you want to be? recommended to myself then then or now you can uh we can we can <laughs> we'll pull a stephen hawking we'll go in the wormhole through and out of time so uh oh that's tricky right because then <laughs> if i go back to then i wouldn't be what i am now right and i wouldn't have covered the right because i would have a different oh no the loop sort of tra- right <laughs> we're gonna have all of these little bubble universes in which um i don't know i okay i will say the native american poetry and folklore that I was exposed to in college was very important to me. Those sort of songs that oftentimes didn't have. And the same with the ballads of uh, Appalachian ballads, the Scottish and Irish uh, sort of tradition that came over. And I think those were very important to me in that there was not the sense of authorship, but the sense of this sort of choral, communal access and um, various ways of playing that ballad, speaking that ballad. Um, So that was really important once I came upon it. So I don't know, I guess I would say to myself now, well, I would say maybe to go back to that because I've drifted away from it into a sort of... um, pettier sphere, I guess, a yeah. little bit more uh, into the world of what contemporary poetry is and what these conversations are that we're having. And so I might unmoor myself from that. And maybe I'll do this. I don't know. Maybe in yeah. one of the universes, I guess I already have. Maybe. We don't know, though. Poss- hopefully. Uh, <laughs> that's the thing about the multiverse, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that, that that's just, just kind of hearkening back to that base base of interest from where you are again. Um, well, tell me tell me this, uh, Skinny, your first book. Uh, looking back at that now, uh, how was that writing process for you, and how have you improved upon that? Um, I don't. Uh, the writing process for it was, I mean, the writing process for both was very intensive. I don't know that I've improved. Proved. I've, uh, though I guess the second is a better book than mm-hmm. the first, I believe. But the first, I think the process was much more, there's something to that first book, even though now people don't often put out first books anymore because the, it's so hard to get picked up that we, you know, have written into and reformed the poems for 15 years before that first book comes out. So it's really not a first book in the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. But mine's sort of halfway a first book, I guess. And I don't know. I think that the great thing is a lot of the gestures that I see now, and I'm like, I, and it sort of hurts a little bit to see. Yeah. I was um, open enough to do because I hadn't really decided what I was. Yeah. And as a writer and as I worked and as I got called things by my teachers, my mentors, by people I was lucky enough to, you know, have read the book, 
as people start to call you something, well, then you can start to become that and believe that. And so I guess that's where I, I was with the second book. I started to kind of think of myself as um, in the vein of what people had called me. That's interesting. And so now I think it's a matter of, to some extent, un, as, as sort of unzipping that and stepping back out of it again. So are you going to find your, are, are your current writings finding yourself reacting against that more? Or yes. is it, okay, interesting. In, in what ways, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I think one is geography. Geography is everything to me. Uh, and I mean the inhabitants of a space and the fauna, the flora, the, the history, the trouble. So that means a tremendous amount to me. So one is just very simply lifting the geography and moving into a different physical space, mm -hmm. accessing voices that I have been more reluctant to access and uh, a way that very much the workshop, the traditional workshop atmosphere does not kin to. So being willing to access, you know, even like the pronoun uh, in really kind of gener more generous ways. Um, so those are some of the things that I've, I've started to think about. And also I think thinking about female speech and female silences in a larger sort of uh, context or as something that I am part of, a party to. No, I think that that's really interesting to, to see those reactions and what that's going to play into. Do you have an idea for a, a book at this point? Yes. Yeah? Is that you're keeping it under 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 wraps until it's kind of more formulated, uh, peeking out, as, as you mentioned before? Yes. No, I think that's good. Um, you also practice karate? <laughs> I, I got to read your biography on your website, and it is a excellent biography, uh, very revealing and many nuanced details. Uh, tell me about that. How did that come about? Uh, that came about after Katrina. We came back in October. My husband was like a whatever they call it, necessary employee or whatever. And so we came back early in October. And I think it was just part of being uh, part of a, a minority. Women, there were just not many women at all. Yeah. A tremendous number of men coming from the outside, uh, carpet bagging and, you know, doing a lot of work and you know some of which you know we should be very grateful for and some of which you know outsiders coming in uh, it was it was a complex situation and so I was finding myself and I've talked to other women about this too and I'm sort of asking a lot of questions of other women who came back early I think we felt very objectified yeah um I couldn't even like walk out on my porch without men kind of slowing down in their vehicles and things like this happening. So I thought, well, you know, and I also was drinking a good bit and sort of, you know, uh, I had never done anything physical in my life. Um, and so I was walking around and I saw this karate dojo and I thought, well, you know, whatever. Uh, and, you know, that, and it's been tremendous. It's been the most difficult thing I've ever done aside from having a child uh, and raising a child and looking at a human being who's looking at me all the time. Uh, that this was second in the most difficult things I've ever done. So wow. it's very challenging to be in my body. And yeah. To, yeah. To be interacting in that and attempting yeah, to do those just things. just not so. what my people ever did was that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, writing in the South and in Southern veins, what are some trends you see? Let me do that again. <clears throat> 
being from Tennessee, uh, moving throughout the South, and now, you know, uh, writing about some of these things that happen here, uh, what are some trends you see in current Southern literature and Southern poetry in particular that are exciting to you? Uh, what are some that, where do you see it going, I guess? I, I don't think I can speak very intelligently to where it's going. Yeah. I can say where it's been that uh, excites me. Yeah. I very much enjoy the work of um, Derek Carell, who is a poet who works in Persona a good bit. He's at Mississippi. He's not originally from the South, but once you get down here, you you know you're down here. Yeah. And um, C.D. Wright and Frank Stanford were uh, both very influential. Um, Bessemer Brigham, as well, whom C.D. Wright championed. Uh, she kept all of her poems, not C.D. Wright, but Brigham in a, um, in like old refrigerators, if I remember correctly. And um, I, the, in the younger generation, uh, I'm interested in the work of Shelley Taylor as a poet who also went to Tucson, but as a poet out of Georgia. So I, I think I'm interested in, yes, in poetry that sort of accesses the terrain, which we just can't seem to... Uh, it's like cat's claw. You just can't seem to rip that from the poems, no matter what uh, mm -hmm. that that comes up in this in this work. But also the the vernacular and calling it into question mm -hmm. and working with it. And yes, I mean poets who are polyphonic. Working with that, yeah, that's that, interesting. It's it, it, you're stuck in the soup, right? You know, you can't get out. No. Um, well, well, awesome, Carolyn. Well, before we go, um, this interview is going to be airing. Uh, November. Uh, I was wondering if you have any events coming up in late November, December, or the new year. Yes, thank you for asking. I will be at the Faulkner Festival, and that's going to be November the 12th in the afternoon. Oh, fantastic. Well, Caroline, it was such a pleasure to talk with you. It was great to talk to you too, David. My guest for today was poet and educator Carolyn Hembry, and her latest book is Rigging a Chevy into a Time Machine and Other Ways to Escape a Plague, uh, which you can get now at local bookstores as well as the library. And uh, that is our show. Uh, you've been listening to the Writer's Forum on WRBH, which you can catch every Thursday at 4.30 p.m., Saturday at 8.30 a.m., and also Sunday at 1 p.m. This interview, as well as all of our other interviews, can be found on our SoundCloud page, which you can find at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.